Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bond by Numbers for our first episode of 2023. Happiest of New Year's to wherever you're listening from, and we are glad that you've joined us here today to start the new year with a literary gun barrel episode. We are on our fourth John Gardner novel now, Roll of Honor. And I'm delighted to be starting the year this way. My name is Scott Powell, and with me as always on these literary adventures is my brother in Bond across the pond, Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor. Hello, buddy. How are you? Hello. Uh, not too bad. Happy 2023. Indeed, yeah. It'll, uh, it'll be no worse than 2022, I don't think. Hopefully better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. 2023, I'm optimistic about it. Uh, things, you know... Things could get really interesting. Things could get better, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go. For, I'm going to keep my mindset in that in that direction. Uh, in terms of our show, I mean, we've had a pretty good year. I mean, we, we put out some pretty we good sure episodes did. and had some good stories outside of you know what's going on yeah. in the rest of the world. And you yeah, know, absolutely, yeah. Now I know you know we dealt with you know with uh, family situations, personal situations, and illnesses, and all this sort of stuff. You know, it's been a bit of a roller coaster that way. So again, you know, I I put forth my optimism uh, for the coming year. Mm-hmm. Um, I got some interesting ideas that we've been talking about, you know, how we're going to be changing our format. We're keeping the same format as we had before, but we're going to be trying, I think, different type, different genres, uh, different ways of looking at the mystery novel, both in terms of fiction and nonfiction. I think that'll be something we can really explore this year. Are you talking about lighting the pipes or? Oh, Yeah. Forgot about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's, a, okay. It's, it's okay. A, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's yeah. So it's, that was kind of an unintentional plug for our other podcast, uh, <laughs> right, lighting yeah, the pipes, yeah. in which we talk about the mystery novel. Uh, because I have a novel here in front of me, and I'm just automatically under the assumption I'm working on the lighting the pipes show and not Bond by Numbers. I guess the absence mm-hmm. of our dear friend uh, Jeff Chapman kind of explains that, right? It does. Yeah, yeah. Jeff doesn't often do these uh, literary reads with us, and. Uh, yeah, so I, I, you're you're forgiven. You're forgiven for that slip. Yeah. So let, so I'll, I'll kind of move things forward, go into the world of, of movies and stuff because that's what you know. Bomb by Numbers is all about. I began uh, my cinematic journey in 2023 yesterday, uh, not in terms of the Bond films or the spy genre, but my friend and I we went out and saw Avatar: The uh, Way of Water, mm-hmm. uh, James Cameron's mm-hmm. second outing, I guess, in that in the Pandora world and whatnot, and. That was a very immersive experience, I have to say, like visually yeah. uh, stunning. Yeah. Like it's something you got to go see in the theater for sure and get the experience. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. I found it better than the first film. I had my criticisms about the first movie. Well, I, I found it very visually innovative and groundbreaking. And, you know, James Cameron, no matter what this movie is doing, he knows how to direct an action sequence. He knows how to cut an action mm-hmm. sequence. Mm-hmm. There is no doubt about it that he would probably do a great Bond film if he ever did one. Uh, interesting yeah well of yeah. course he's done the terminator he's done terminator 2 you know he's he's got the uh the meat true, action true lies true lies that's a good one yeah. i'd forgotten true lies yeah of course probably I've, the closest to the genre that we've seen yeah and of course aliens uh not that's not really close to the genre that you know we're doing but uh that, that mm-hmm. to me is still one of the greatest good action, action movies yeah. ever and one of the best sequels ever too in my opinion but I'll, I, I will without say, knowing Sorry, I'm just going to ask you, buddy, has James Cameron ever been touted in the discussion? I mean, outside of tabloid headlines and, you know, potential, has anybody ever really had serious conversations about James Cameron in the world of Bond? I don't think so. To be, It's interesting that he hasn't, you know. He's always been associated, I think, with more high-octane type of action movies. Uh, 
it yeah. seems to me that yeah. he probably would have done a great Brosnan era film because mm-hmm. I just found like mm-hmm. the, the Craig era was wasn't really his wasn't really his style. You know, it didn't have that big octane fueled kind of orgy. You know, that Terminator Two Judgment mm-hmm. Day had in, in that in that respect. And of course, he's been working on Avatar like for the past. He's still working on it. He's working on this for the past right, like yeah. almost f- fifteen years now, and he has apparently movie three already in the can, ready to go. And I guess because, you know, he's he's cr- killing box office records now. So he's like, I guess I'll have to go make month four and five now. Mm-hmm. So uh, he just mm-hmm. announced that. But you know what? <laughs> Cheers to a fellow Canadian, you know, doing good in the movie industry and doing what he likes. Doing better stuff, than good. <laughs> doing, doing better, better than, than good. <laughs> doing better than good. Uh, I will say this. I enjoy the sequel more than the first film. I found it kind of builds on things. It kind of, like The Force Awakens, I found was kind of like a rehash of A New Hope a little bit, kind of a reintroduction mm-hmm. to that world again by using the same kind of story elements and tropes. They do apply, they do put this into Avatar the way of water, but okay. at the same time, cool. he, he builds on things and you can, I can kind of see his long-term plan, kind of why he wants to have so many films to tell this story. Now I'm kind of seeing that because he slows things down. And I must say like going into a, a movie theater these days and not seeing kind of like a tentpole Marvel production and seeing like a lot of money put into like an original IP this man has created, whether you can say his ideas are original. I mean, that's another story completely. Of course. But, yeah, of course. Yeah. But, you know, every, everything borrows from something. So it's good to go out and see a movie in the theater, kind of like, you know, uh, Top Gun Maverick, for example, which to me was one of the best films I saw last year. Uh, it was just one of those stories. It's, it's nice to go to see a movie that's not about a comic book. I know this is coming from me. It's nice to go to see a movie that's not about a comic book property or a video game mm-hmm. or, or something along those lines. Like it's its own, it's a, its own original thing, its own original creation. So I give a props to that. And I do recommend if you want to have a great experience in the theater, uh, go check that out. And that's my first okay. cinematic indulgence of 2023. Well, well said. Um, I haven't been to the cinema since I saw Elvis and, uh, that was right. a long time ago. That was in the summer, but, uh, I, I, yeah, that was good. But you know, we're on different, our lives are at different stages and different oh, situations. For example, I mean, no, nothing, nothing crystallizes that better than the fact that I have moved my podcasting recording uh, up to the loft <laughs> where I'm currently sitting with a uh, Bear grills like outfit on and these, uh, this thermos because it's cold up here, man. But this is the only place, my gabled loft, where I can actually... Uh, get some some space away from the kids uh, unless I shunt them out the house and uh, you know I've done that for four years now I think it's probably time that the kids don't have to go out all the time when dad and uncle Josh get together <laughs> so here we are this is uh, the first are. episode of bond by numbers recorded from the um, what will we call it the the loft studio the loft yeah to be to be honest now I know we mentioned you know like you looking like bare grills or something along the other like but with the Chicago Blackhawks jersey on right now and the, just the way the background looks like you're a totally Clark Griswold in the loft uh <laughs> in Christmas Jesus, I didn't even think of that I didn't even think of that yeah yeah just, just watch just just watch yeah. where you're stepping <laughs> that's right yeah oh man I know and it is tight up here I must say it is tight up here you know I've got uh uh, my, I've got this Blackhawks jersey on. It's keeping me warm, and um, I got a hoodie on underneath. I never wear hoodies, but this is just the new normal, and I'm I'm happy to be here. It's beautifully soundproof, though, like naturally soundproofed, and I've uh, and that's great because uh, what we do doesn't bother the family, and what the family does doesn't really bother me. And I'm here if I need to be pulled out. So it's, it's probably a long time coming this transition, Josh. Yeah. 
maybe what you're going to do is maybe kind of like if you bring like some kind of whiteboard up there, you can install and you can have like something like in the in the background, kind of like. I mean, it's up to you if you want to keep this whole rugged look. I mean, yeah. that's cool too. Like you just well, created the like, rugged a, look. Like, like a like, like a fort on in 15 minutes on YouTube is some of those videos, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see behind me. There's there's literally boxes here of uh, yeah. things that have been stored. And if I were to turn the camera around, I could show you, you know, the same. But I've got like <laughs> yeah. ceiling fans. It's kind of pointless for it's all... for our listeners, quote unquote, right? So <laughs> this is terrible. It's terrible podcasting. It's just to say yeah, that uh, I'm up in the <laughs> attic. That's that's it. I've been yeah. I've been I've it's been an, relegated to the attic. It's a new situation. That's perfectly fine. Uh, yeah, you're like 007. You've been kind of, you know, you're relegated to an assignment to make you look like you're, you know, no longer part oh. of the company. That's a nice transition, actually, Josh, into uh, into where we're going now with the uh, role of I, I honor. So. It is our it is our fourth John Gardner read. It is our latest literary gun barrel episode. And uh, although the beginning was tortured, everybody, the rest of our episode will hopefully be to your liking. Um Thank you very much for joining us and Happy New Year wherever you're listening to this from. Once again, it is Bond by Numbers, not starting off a new season. We're continuing the season from our <laughs> uh, pretty pretty fun holiday special we did there last month. We're going to finish up in four or five episodes from now. But uh, yeah, on with the show, my good man, on with the show. Right. So the fourth John Gardner, James Bond novel, Role of Honor, that's what we're talking about today. So far, it's been kind of a bumpy ride with Mr. Gardner, I found. Like, the mm. first two novels were incredibly generic. And mm. the third novel, uh, Icebreaker, I found that a nice kind of – that was refreshing. There was some – It was. He, yeah. he tried different things in that story, and, and it kind of worked out well, despite, you know, cliche Nazi villains. Uh, but, you know – this time around, we're just going to replace cliche Nazi villains with more cliched villains, albeit not Nazis, but still. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's so there's a few cliches here. Um, yeah, <laughs> but you know, as I was as I was doing up some notes for the show, Josh, I was I was trying to articulate for myself really what it is about the Gardner villains as we've seen them so far that have kind of created or I, I should say what it is about the Gardner villains that is most noticeable and I think if we were to consider them it, it, it's like a mold right isn't it because they have involved the four or four Gardner books now have involved thin older white guys as villains uh, the Laird of Mercaldi, Conrad von Gloda Walter Luxor from for special services and i know you could say that nina bismacher was actually the big bad but you know walter luxor was like next in line right the big skinny uh high ordered specter agent and now we've got dr autumn holy uh or if you prefer sinjin finesse sinjin finesse yeah or fins however you pronounced it that's yeah. perfectly fine in the book we're told that it is pronounced finesse okay I must have missed that. Which part. Sounds probably to me really dumb, but hey, yeah. it is what it is. Like uh, sometimes yeah, when so you're Gard Gardner is sorry. Go ahead. I said sometimes when you're disinterested in what you're reading, you miss things like that. <laughs> Gardner Gardner's just given us th this trope, and he's not really deviating from it much. Even though he did a little bit with the female Blofeld, but he hasn't 
you know, and it gives us young henchmen, but there's a real reticence about breaking away from old white baddies. And maybe that has something to do with the the era. I don't know. But all of the villains have kind of been a little bit like Elliot Carver style guys. Do you know what I mean? Kind of a little bit. Yeah. Like eccentric billionaires, eccentric industrialists, eccentric uh, people with military backgrounds, ideologies, that yeah. sort of thing. But yeah. we're yeah. kind of interestingly enough about ideologies. I think we have our first kind of character What's interesting about Blofeld from the Bond novels, I suppose, is that, you know, he was non-ideological. You know, he was, an in- mm-hmm. he was more about, That's right. you know, employing his powers to the highest bidder. And now what was interesting, we talked about, you know, old white men as like the lead villains. Well, technically, by the end of this book, we have, a, a vil- we have basically an ethnic villain emerging as, an, eth- an ethnic character emerging as the big honcho, so to speak, the big bad and, mm-hmm. you know, so, so that, so that was a, a refreshing change, I suppose. And I did not see that twist coming, to be honest with you. Um, and I did not expect to see that particular organization again. I thought Gardner was done with it, but apparently he's going back to the, uh, going to, he's, you know, he's digging back into the old stories. So that's a generous term for what he's really doing, in my opinion, but. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. But I, but we'll get into that I guess when we discuss uh, the allies and adversaries part of our angle. Yeah. For those not for those not uh, in, you know familiar with um, our old podcast that we used to do through the literary gun barrel, which we sometimes insert you know old old episodes you know between our regular podcasts for Bond by Numbers, uh, you know where we went through the entire Bond canon by Fleming the the, the Fleming sweep so to speak. We have a, a rating system. It's called. It was called the Angle for that series, and which is basically an acronym for Allies and Adversaries, Narrative, Girl or Girls, uh, or Women, or Women. But the acronym serves that purpose only. Of course, it does. Uh, we, yeah. we really mean Bond women, not Bond girls, because that's kind of like an old folky term that you know we, we want to kind of stay away from. Because <laughs> we now have the, we we now have the Bond women, right? The Bond women, so to speak. Absolutely. Now. Uh, after the girls, we have L for location or locale, and then E for equipment. And we review each one mm-hmm. of those out of five. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that gives us an index score based out of 25, which we use to rank the books. But there's also the aesthetic feel. And uh, that that's worth a lot, even if we don't necessarily um, factor it into our rating system. But we've done four of these gardeners now, plus the one Kingsley Amos. And we are slowly working our way through the continuation novels. Uh, something Josh has uh, neglected to mention, um, or not neglected, that's not the right word. Something, um, Josh, it's also probably important we recognize. We're both big readers, but we read lots of other things. And like so many of our listeners, you know, we're not just going to plow through the next 20 books. Boom, 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 boom. Like we've got things we're reading for work, things we're reading for life, things we're reading fiction, nonfiction, things we're reading for our other podcast, Lighting the Pipes, if you're interested in mystery and crime more generally than pop over there. We'll be getting that series started again very soon. Um, you know, we're, we could plow through these Gardner novels, but we're just enjoying doing them every couple of episodes with as, as part of our uh, our major drive on Bond by Numbers. Every, uh, But I think yeah. this year we got plans to get through, next season we got plans to get through three or four of these books. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm excited about doing these books with you. I remember mentioning that earlier in the show, uh, a couple, few episodes back, a few reading books back, you know. It might have been when we were doing License Revoked. I am really glad we're doing these, and um, I'm excited to see where the Bond character goes. I have read a couple of the later books, like Sebastian Falks and Kim Sherwood, I know um, we talked about earlier, but 
I haven't None read any. That's right. Yeah. And I haven't read any of these gardeners though, or the Benson books afterwards. And so I'm a bit of a newbie in that respect. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to taking this journey and there's absolutely nobody I'd rather be taking it with than yourself. You've been my reading Thank partner you. since way, way before we started podcasting. You know, we've been doing stuff like this and, uh, and not sharing it with others for many, many years back to the old days of snail mail reading lists and soundtracks and, you know, mixtapes. Mm-hmm. We've, uh, we've been at this a long time. So it's, uh, it, it's really, for me, I, I love the episodes with Jeff where we crunch the movies, we do the what-ifs, we have fun. But I feel like sometimes this is us getting down to brass tacks a little bit more in the wheelhouse of what started us all off, you know? And I, and I really like these literary episodes we do because they, I, th- I think they um, give us an opportunity to meet each other at our best, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's nice. Nostalgia, I mean, by, it's a Greek word that means, you know, old wounds, but I, I don't think of them as wounds. I think the more of them as I don't want to use the word triggers because that sort of has a connotation these days that refers to a lot of other situations. I, but yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I like the feeling that I get, you know, returning to nostalgia, to returning to, mm-hmm. despite you know what I might feel about the text that I'm reading. Mm-hmm. I f- I feel that you know just talking about it and going back into what we love about that world and discussing how that world doesn't quite how that how was how a particular story may not actually bring back that world the way that we wanted it to and thinking about the way that we wanted it to be you know that's part that's part of the yeah. fun i think you know even in terms of criticism while it's not really fun to eviscerate a novel at the same time it is fun talking about it regardless so mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of nostalgia, just before we get into our book review, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, we're coming upon the anniversary of uh, our dearly departed Granio, yes. who, uh, of course, is such an important figure to this show, really, because she motivated its beginning, its origins way back by giving us our first Bond films and, and introducing us, our grandmother, to the series. Uh, if you're interested in hearing any of her uh, posthumous, well, not posthumous, there <laughs> it was certainly lively when she was around. But if you're interested in listening to any of her reviews, and uh, then by all means go back to season one and then uh, check out uh, the end of our big film episodes that we do with Jeff. Uh, we've always got a Granio interview there, and uh, that was such fun. I'm so pleased we did that, and I'm so pleased for posterity's sake that we got those on yes, recorded absolutely. too. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice yeah. to it's nice to have that to fall back on, you know. Just if you want to, you know, remember her and outside of the usual ways of remembering someone, you know, who's dear, who's very mm-hmm. dear to me and and um, pa- and passed away re- recently. Yeah, well, sure. not recently, but it still feels kind of recently in in in, in the sense. Yeah. But. Well, it's been a year now, so. Uh, why don't we dedicate yeah. this episode to her? I doubt she ever read this book and would ever want to, but uh, yeah, this, this is for uh, <laughs> our dearly departed Granny O, and she would have some opinions about it, you can damn well be sure. Too much computers. <laughs> <laughs> That's one thing, yeah. All right, uh, why don't we get into it, buddy? Why don't we get into it? It's time to yeah. discuss Roll of Honor. And uh, as always, we've got a little plot summary prepared sure for do. you. So. If uh, you have read the book and uh, you just want to meet us on the other side of the summary, then just fast forward about 15, 16 minutes and we'll get you on the other end. But if uh, if you want a refresh of what this fourth novel by Gardner is all about, then uh, sit back and relax and uh, I'll take you through it. All right.
After its cold open, featuring a meticulous and mysterious art heist executed in great detail with wizard-like effect en route to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, Roll of Honor, John Gardner's fourth 007 outing, starts with the most unlikely motivating incident of any Bond novel. Equal parts nebulous, lazy, and ridiculous, Gardner kickstarts the story with an episode that, if pursued logically, would raise legitimate questions and threaten canon regarding Bond's origin story and orphaned background. Gardner, by now Fleming's descendant and the de facto lit Bond monarch, however, he doesn't seem to answer to anyone, and he writes with a bravado that knows as much. Rich Uncle Bruce from Australia has died and left Bond a sweet inheritance. Ignore the fact that Bond's uncle has never before come into play across 18 previous novels or collections of adventure. Ignore also the fact that his windfall amounts to well over £700,000 in today's purchasing power. Both inclusions stand to potentially change Bond forever, but the author is just being whimsical here, flaunting his authority and prerogative. And as for Bruce himself, well, Gardner offers no explanations or relationship threads whatsoever. Just that Bond gets, and instantly rich, Bond gets instantly rich, and pretty soon after, in big trouble for not declaring the income with his employer. I guess a guy can't just casually splurge at a Bentley dealership anymore these days. M and Tanner sit Bond down for a stern chat after news of his spending gets back to MI6. Oh, uh, forget also uh, that Bill Tanner is supposed to be Bond's golfing partner and closest friend. Fleming and Amos both matter not here. In this adventure, Tanner is pulling rank as chief of staff, so we'll just go along with it. A ruse is formed, however, quickly, once Bond recovers from being stripped down a few pegs for his recklessness. That ruse will eventually see him, quote-unquote, resign from the service. He'll then be put out to pasture as a free agent, a gun for hire. As quickly as he was officially let go, Bond is pulled back into M's Webb, a safe house in St. Martin's Lane, more specifically, where his superior says to him, Forget what we told you during our last meeting words that could easily have come from the mouth of Gardner to his reader. Anyway, now that he's been established throughout the intelligence community as persona non grata, Bond is shown three pictures, one of deceased computer programmer Dr. J. Autumn Holy, and two others, before and afters, of his widow, Persephone Proud, CIA associate, to whom Bond was being sent. In Monte Carlo, he'd be learning more from her about his clandestine mission and receive the necessary training to go undercover. Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking it more than a little paradoxical that Monte Carlo with an attractive woman was touted as the ideal setting for James Bond's intense training in computer programming. But Gardner doesn't care what you think, remember? He's outfitting his own arbitrary adventure here at the start of Roll of Honor. Less a test of Bond's mettle, the choice of locale for these weeks of training feels more like a reward from M, like sending a kid to learn French in Disneyland or something. But it gives us some customary, if quickly glossed, dinners and nights out for Bond and Percy. Predictably, their relationship is consummated pretty swiftly in the aura of late-night cocktails and C-plus programming. The job detail is pretty intricate for Bond. It'll be one of his biggest reaches, but we're in the 80s here, a decade of reach, the true arena of Bond make-believe. 
If Roger Moore can be an astronaut, circus clown, and horse dealer on screen, all within five years of this publication, then literary Bond can probably pass as a computer expert. But to other experts? Watch this space. Anyway, Percy gets down to brass tacks. After a lengthy spell at the Pentagon, where he excelled at simulations and war games, Dr. Autumn Holy went down in an airplane wreck in the Grand Canyon, with his military bud, Rolling Joe Zwingley. Presumed dead, nobody heard from or of Holy again. But fast forward to recent day, and Professor Jason Sinjun Finesse, reclusive owner of Gunfire Simulations, a computer games company specializing in simulations of historic military campaigns. St. John Finesse hosts weekend parties where war games feature heavily, so Bond is to learn enough code to pass off as a programmer and rock up to Endor, Professor Jason's manor home at Nuns Cross, Oxfordshire, to ask for a job. Once accepted, he's to see what Holy is really up to. Like others of the Gardner series so far, this is a joint British-American investigation. Bond is the legs, but M and the CIA will receive his intel and work point. To his credit, Bond is momentarily exasperated when told what he'll need to do, and he refers to the operation as, quote, harebrained. Yeah. Percy confides that J. Autumn Holy has, quote, amazing powers of concentration and that his programs are built with security features and sophistication that criminal outfits would almost certainly be paying top dollar for. He's almost certainly gone freelance with his skills, too, using gunfire simulations as a front for his less palatable exploits. But how to gain an introduction? How can Bond punch that first ticket into Endor without an Imperial shuttle and updated codes? Sorry, sorry, it's a little Star Wars joke there. Well, as it turns out, fortune favors the Bond. Freddy Fortune, that is. A promiscuous ex-fling of Bonds who just happens to be an occasional guest of St. John Finesse and his weekend parties. Though he objects to her annoying charms and pretends not to be happy about it, Bond cavorts once again with this grating old flame and uses the connection to infiltrate the forest moon. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I mean, St. John Finesse's estate. Now... Because he's technically retired, Bond doesn't have to lie as much as he usually does being undercover. This is something of a relief because, mercifully, we bypass so much of the convince the baddie trope. Well, sort of. While a guest at Endor, Bond is introduced to the rest of Holy's entourage. Wife, Dazzle, aloof and stately, who looks more than a little like Percy did before her makeover, and two in-house programmers, Peter Amadeus, gay and stereotypically opinionated, and Cindy Chalmer, sexy nerd and soon-to-be informant. There's also Balmer and Hopcraft, otherwise known as Tigerbalm and Happy, hired muscles who lurk nearby, but don't really amount to much. They're a threat on the page for only a few moments. Cindy presents herself as a CIA agent and working in cahoots with Percy. Bond isn't sure to trust her at first, but he soon warms to her unique lines of undercover code. Having copied some of Holy's secure programs under Cindy's auspices, one entitled Balloon Game, of great import, Bond looks for a chance to dispatch the news to M. He does get a message through to Regent's Park, but only just. On the road to Oxford, he's ambushed and drugged. He wakes up in some sort of terrorist training camp known as Erewhon, 
a facility for breeding next-generation chaos. The air is warm and foreign, and Bond struggles to make sense of everything that he sees, but the guides, led by a dude named Simon, are pleasant enough, even if they are armed. Bond is brought before a man, Tamil Rahani, the authority figure behind this camp outfit. Part American, part Lebanese, Rahani tells Bond that he'll need to be tested to be trusted, especially if he is to become part of Sinjun Finesse's inner circle, and his own for that matter. What follows is an elaborate training exercise with real casualties and live ammunition that sees Bond negotiate a violent, life-threatening route. The odds are stacked against him, but he manages, surprise, surprise, to get the better of the nameless and faceless opponent. The episode serves little purpose from a character point of view. I mean, we know Bond is going to win, but it satisfies the need to swap settings and provide a set piece before returning to Endor. Oh, and it also introduces us to the new leader of Spectre. Yeah, it turns out that Rahani is way more than just an electronics chairman and shareholder. He's the new number one. After Bond dispatched Blofeld in You Only Live Twice, and his daughter more recently in For Special Services, Rahani took over. Now, for the sake of bringing back the old foe, with whom Bond seems entirely bored, by the way, Gardner goes to Crazy Town and conjures an unbelievable scenario. The man who single-handedly thwarted so many of its plots, cost it billions in prospective enterprise, and personally eradicated its two previous leaders, not to mention innumerable henchmen and peons over the years, is the same man now being vetted by the organization to help out on a mission of enormous consequence. As if all that was required was just a pink slip from MI6 and a bottom corner retirement notice in the Times to make Bond an evil guy. Well, as suggested by Cindy and Percy, Holy was indeed freelancing his genius to a higher bidder, and now Bond is working for Spectre. The waters are murky here. Some distrust, some testing, some chuckling and double bluffing. But the fact that these waters exist at all in this book is pretty damning evidence of just how little Gardner seems to be caring about the character and the canon, at least this time around. Whatever the situation's shortcomings... Once he has earned the trust of Spectre's commander-in-chief, Bond becomes part of Operation Balloon Game, where he will use his foreign service intel and links to acquire the epoch frequencies for the destabilization of nuclear weapons. The emergency presidential orders communications, amounted to cleared radio frequencies, change regularly, and that is to be used by the president only while outside of America. Spectre is using Holy's computer genius to manufacture, just like it did with the Cruxator paintings heist in the opening of the book, a sophisticated takeover of defense computer security systems. So, far from ratcheting it up, Spectre plans on removing the nuclear threat so fast between the East and the West that both economies grow unstable and chaos ensues. Two superpowers get stripped naked of their biggest weapons and leave room on the stage for new powers to emerge. Or at least, this is what the altruistic Dr. Holy believes he's signed up for. The truth, learned towards the end of the novel, is that Rahani intends to issue the epoch for American disarmament only, leaving his friends in the Soviet Union top dogs in the nuclear playground. But before the big event takes place, games and sex. First, Bond is returned to Oxfordshire peaceably, 
and back to Endor, where he must defeat Holy at his own game. This one, a beta version of Gunfire Simulation's latest title, based on the intricacies of conflict in the American Revolutionary War. The narrative set piece is entertaining enough, and Bond finds a way to beat the genius at his own game. Desperate to get a message to M once more, Bond sneaks into the parked Bentley by using Cindy, at her own behest, I might state, women's lib and all that, eh, Gardner, to peep-show the guards. Now, while this red-light show is ongoing, Peter Amadeus pops up and surprises Bond in the garage by asking to be taken safely away. He's had enough of this covert shit, and he wants some clean work, don't you know? Well, Bond can only think to tell him to hop in the trunk of the Bentley, and he hopes to get him out soon. He'll have to sleep there for a few hours, but Peter seems up for it. Amadeus complies, taking his chances with that boot, and the prospect of returning to some normal life. Lesser pay, but longer lifespan. When he returns to Cindy's room through the garage skylight, Bond pretty quickly dances the cathartic boogaloo and tallies sexual tryst number three. In the morning, Holy confronts Bond with his knowledge of that dalliance and accuses Cindy of being a thief, which she is. In a naive bros-before-hose gesture, he simply asks Bond if he is legit and onside, despite having spent the night with the traitor. Bond just says yes. Uh, okay... So that seems good enough to greenlight the next steps of Operation Balloon Game. Bond heads into London, under instructions to collect the Epoch Frequency for the next day. He does this, but not before meeting Percy, M, and Tanner. In this meeting, Percy becomes the reader's surrogate, and is given a broader view of the so-called plowshare danger, and why immediate consignment of nuclear weapons to a scrap heap poses enormous risk to the world. It's not riveting stuff, to be fair, but it's factual, perhaps, and Gardner leads us to believe that Bond is willing to sacrifice his life to make sure that this balloon game doesn't come off as planned. On his way back to Endor with the Epoch Frequency, Bond is apprehended on the motorway for the second time, corralled, then shepherded by two transports into a larger ramp-dropping lorry. Bond is taken away from his Bentley and drugged again, when he wakes, he's in an executive jet flying to Switzerland, where the balloon game starts in full. Outside of Bern, Spectre are holding a team of Goodyear employees hostage and have commandeered their Europa airship. Max Zorin Blimp, anyone? Well, from the skies above an international summit, Rahani intends to activate the mission. I'll skip some of the details here, but in secret collaboration with Nick the pretty cool pilot character that we see towards the end of the story and working under duress, Bond manages to foil Rahani's plan and save the world from a disastrous nuclear stalemate. But not before the Spectre head jumps from the blimp with a parachute and lands safely on the French side of Lake Geneva. He's not seen again in this tale, but threats from Holy, Simon, and a number of other Erewhon cronies are neutralized before the blimp lands safely. So, what started with Bond's dishonor ends as a reclamation of his honor. Thanks for saving the world, 007. In return, why not take a month's leave? Well, he does. With Percy, to Rome, to Greece, throughout the Ionian Sea. It's a lovely time, up until a specter assassin, Rahani's best, Gardner tells us, tries to eliminate the two lovers in their cabin at night. That motivates a conversation, led by Percy, 
on how the two just love their dangerous lives too much to ever properly settle into love. So they kiss and go their separate ways. It's tough to feel sorry for Bond in this one, and not just because the romance was as shallow as a kiddie pool. If dishonor means you get a hefty bag of inheritance, a swish Bentley, three beautiful women, and a chance to save the world while learning to be a whiz on computers, then sign me up and color me bad. I'm in for the long haul. Well, I think at this point, you know, with that summary, more like review, I think we can just call it a day and then take off because, well, <laughs> well, it, it, it wasn't, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, sh- I showed my hand, parts of my hand there with that, but I didn't show it all. Um, the parts that were easy to talk about were easy to talk about, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um uh, but I mean, I think that just comes through in the nest, even like in terms of a narrative and you're going over something as a summary, mm-hmm. you can't help fall into the critical aspect yeah. of things because. No, you can't. You, you gotta if you're going to be objective gotta, about it. You're writing blurbs for Wikipedia, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and that's perfectly fine, but it doesn't work all the time. I, I think, you know, it came off as very naturalistic response to what you were, what you were summarizing. And I think, if anything, it gave more momentum and excitement than the actual novel did. So, whoops, <laughs> well, I let's tipped see. my hat again there, didn't I? Okay. You did. You did. Well, let's let's get into our angle then, Josh. Uh, you've already explained what our angle is. It's our scoring system. And we start with allies and adversaries, the good guys, yeah. the bad guys, the friends, the enemies. Let's, so, yeah. let's go. Let's look at uh, our allies and adversaries. So, for allies, we have... Percy or Persephone Proud. We have Cindy Chalmers. Uh, two characters that seem like they're Stan Lee creations because of like the uh, alliteration in, in, in the naming scheme. Uh, yeah, I know, right? I feel like, yeah, like he's given them comic book names and not James Bond, not uh, well, Bond women names. Perce- I mean, Percy Proud is kind of, it's kind of bouncy. It's kind of flouncy, you know? It seems like she's, I, I don't know, like Percy Proud just seems like she's like, it sounds like someone who would appear in Archie Comics or something like that. I I, I, I don't know. Uh, well, they were very popular in the 80s, remember? Yeah. And I mean, they're still popular now if you they are. consider, yeah, they are. <laughs> if you consider well, Riverdale as Archie, but that's another uh, story altogether. <laughs> that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then we have M, our head of British Secret Service, as usual. Uh, Bill Tanner, our chief of staff, he's back into the uh, canon, so to speak. Uh, he never had a very good year, but I, he did survive the situation, and that would be Nick, the blimp pilot of the Europa. And yep, uh, yep. Peter Peter like, Amadeus like Mozart, Nick. or Peter Amadeus, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was kind of an ally, I suppose, because he was instrumental. He was in kind of. He was a turncoat. Yeah. He was a turncoat. Yeah. A, a, a thinly stretched ally. And then now, we have where would you put the, where would you put Freddy? Where would you put Freddy Fortune? Oh, because yeah, Freddy Fortune. Like, well, which is revealed yeah, as what, a, as a double agent, right? She's revealed as actually being like uh, she's supposed to be some sort of like low key kind of like uh, lipstick communist. I guess you could describe her. Uh, she's kind of like champagne uh, socialist. Yeah, <laughs> champagne socialist. Yeah, yeah. Her character was 
there was a there was a thing of they could have got something interesting in her direction, but she kind of gets just left out of the out of the picture, and it's kind of mm-hmm. we were reminded of her later on in, in the narrative when it comes to the final act. Uh, yeah, because she's basically she's actually a British Secret Service agent, or she's undercover, and she's basically doing that. Uh, that's a way for her, I suppose, to gather up intel on possible communist members. And to me, that kind of has a dark kind of connotation to me because now we know like she could probably just round up young socialists, like young students, you know, coming out of like college or whatever. And and then they're in the London society and they're talking, you know, because Uh they have great ideals because in the night, it's 19, midnight, it's 1980s. It's the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. And there's Mm going to be people there who have socialist views because, Hey, Oh yeah. Big uh, Western democracy may not, may not be that great at that time, you know, like it might be a scary place. And so they have more open-minded philosophies and they're young people. And this person, Freddie Fortune is the one that, you know, rounds them up for MI6 and MI5 and whatnot, and basically feeds Mm -hmm. them to Mm -hmm. the wolves. Right. That's kind of how I feel like what her job is. And so, you know, that's a a dark, a dark spin on, on what she is, as opposed to being kind of a foolish socialite who loves the little red book, you know, or is giving the, is given is or is given or that's her cover story anyway, so that she can lure in these young socialists, right? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but she she is introduced to us, Josh, as like an old flame of Bonds, and Bond is almost like, yeah. oh no, not that grating, annoying woman. I'm gonna have to play into her favor again to get what I need. So it's kind of like she. I kind of got the feeling of her being like a woman that's alluring, but deliberately drawn by Gardner as being kind of annoying, deliberately annoying yeah. sort of sexually charged figure, you know, like a designing women type figure, you know? Do you know where I'm yeah. going with that? T- definitely kind of, stereotype, yeah. promiscuous, wants lots of men. Like she's drawn that way by Gardner in a kind of superficial yes. way. And yes. yet, but yet then you've got that other side of it, which is really interesting. And in a sense, I felt that Freddie Fortune was one of the more valuable assets in the book, even though her presence on page is really, really short. Because there's something, yeah. like you said, you could do with her. There's something you could do with this character. She's got depth if you wanted to go and explore it. But Gardner's not interested in doing that here. No. And another alliterative name, too, Freddie Fortune. There you go again. Which is yeah, kind of a right. hint towards her her true, her true lo- loyalties, because fortune, you know, that implies capitalism, right? So... Uh, that's kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. I will say though, like uh, in terms of like her character, like she kind of reminded me of like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Mitford sisters. Uh, they were sort of like connected to British fascism in the 1930s. Uh, okay. Well, one, well, one of them married Oswald Mosley, uh, who mm, was like the British. Okay. Fasc- it was the British, the British fascist yeah, leader. Anyways, so they remind me a lot of like the Mit- the Mitford sisters in terms of like just being like kind of like these mm. st- these these high this, this socialite someone high in the Society, social yeah, in, yeah. yeah, like, yeah a, like, like Anne Charteris someone like that yeah someone like Anne Charteris exactly uh, and in terms of like they're high in society and they have all these connections to like m- perfidious you know governmental regimes uh, outside of United of, of the UK and, you know, and they have connections to it and they're sympathetic to it, but it only seems to be because they're there for the, for like the attempt it's, but it almost seems like they're uh, fickle in terms of like, mm-hmm. it's almost like they're airheaded, you know, I guess you could say, I don't, I don't want to use the term like yeah, bimbo, yeah. but they're kind of like fascist bimbos. And I think Freddie yep. Fortune is kind of yep. portrayed as sort of like, as a, uh, as sort of like a communist bimbo, like on the surface, mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. almost like, um, if you ever see Community, the character of Britta, who is sort of like this mm-hmm. uh, 
social justice warrior type, but she's also kind of, but she's kind of just there because she just wants to find like a calling in her own life. And she just uses mm-hmm. that as a way to like make herself feel relevant by taking up all these like causes that really have nothing to do with her. And she's only doing it because it, it helps her out, even though she might have good intentions, it still kind of comes off as vapid. So mm-hmm. I think that's, she just reminds me of a character like that, I suppose, you know? Um, I think yeah, you're. So I, think I think you're given you're given Gardner and uh, the character. I, I think, think more credit than than it deserves because she was written. I, I thought with the seedling of of potential and interest, but she was just a sexualized pawn who later, by data dump, we're told, has got a really important role. You know, within MI6. That's kind of how I feel. I feel that too, but I will give Gardner the benefit of the doubt. Maybe just maybe mm-hmm. this 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 is a seedling, as you said, and maybe this is him more establishing a greater kind of doing more world building here, starting starting to do more world building. I would love building. to think so. I would love to think so. Could because we we got Major Boothroyd back in this story. One thing I forgot yeah, to mention right, was yeah. Q in 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 the, in the Allies. He's back after having cute uh, and Riley for the past three books. We now we're back into uh, we're back to to Q, the head of of the of the section the section head of Q, right? Um, himself. So we have mm-hmm. him back into the story. So it's possible we could see Freddie Fortune again. We could see Peter, hopefully maybe I we'll suppose. see Peter yeah. Amadeus again. So I'm going to make, I'm going to keep stock of that and see whether or not okay. these characters return. And if they weren't just like flash in the pan moments for, for Bond, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like yeah. to see I mean, Peter Amadeus return. I would like to see him return because if he does return, then maybe he can shed some of that stereotypical gay, um, characterization and he can become an interesting programmer within MI6. I think I'm being a bit hopeful there, but it would be nice to see Peter Amadeus who left the employ, uh, of Dr. Holy with, you know, real, I guess you could say upstanding morals. I mean, he, he left cause he knew he, he didn't want to have a career with this dude once he became sour and poisonous and, you know, maybe it would be cool because, I mean, MI6 do give him a job at the end of the book. So, yeah, you're onto something there. It would be cool. I will say, though, of all the Gardner books so far, this seems to be the most weakest in terms of Bond women. Like even like if it Lavender mm-hmm. Peacock, even uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the even the women of the previous two novels. The, the, the following two novels, um, Professional Services and Icebreaker, they had a little more depth than the, the characters in this book, in my opinion. Like, we, let's talk about Persephone Proud, Percy. So she's a she's a company woman, so she's CIA, and she was basically the she actually married uh, Joseph Otomholi, sorry, J. Otomholi, uh, just for the sake of you know, as a, as sort of like almost a way of surveilling him and keeping him in. And 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 keeping in, I guess, him in line with the company, with the CIA, right? So they, so they would be able to, so they would be able to to uh, use them for their benefit. And that's right. Yeah. I, I guess they're also sort of had their eye on Zwingli a little bit too. Um, he was one of our adversaries, of course, but we'll get into mm-hmm. him. Uh, but that's and then all of a sudden, she and she's a you know she's a computer genius, and she actually looked like she did when Bond first meets her. And besides the beside the pit, you know, despite the picture of her uh, that he saw, where she's quite overweight and whatnot, she did deliberately did that so just so that she could hook herself up with uh, Jay Holy. I'm wondering if like that's the reason why he bought her as a, as a wife and not a, not not a double agent against him, someone spying on him, keeping you know surveillance on him. Yeah, maybe because you know maybe 
you know, like it would be too obvious if they have, if they send some siren, you, you know, to seduce mm-hmm. him and marry him, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like sort of like, uh, t- Tom and his Canadian, uh, green card wife on parks and recreation, you know, it's just not a believable mm-hmm. c- scenario. And that's yeah. why maybe he, and he, and he kind of didn't notice that at first. And obviously he had no idea even up to the end of till his death that Percy was actually a CIA like she was a CIA agent. So that's mm-hmm. interesting. But what about this? Like, and she obviously, because she hooked up with them because she has a knowledge of, 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 you know, microcomputers and computer technology and programming. So she was able to, I, you know, get under his skin that way. And then she, of course she's able to teach bond. I have to say mm-hmm. of all the most unbelievable uh, term uh, like adventures that James Bond has ever been in would be to have, would, would be for him. Like we know he's like, would be for him to like learn computer programming in what six months, like yeah, no he he learns it in a one month. He's got oh, one, one month of training. Sorry, sorry, yeah. I had no so idea. One month oh, of training. Okay. Well, that it's changes everything. That changes yeah. everything. Then okay, okay, but it just well, it just really this is getting into narrative, so I don't want to go there. But yeah, the fact that yeah. she can bestow upon him in Monte Carlo while they're whining and dining and casinoing, he has the brain to sponge up everything he needs to know about tricking this computer genius into believing he's a code guy and was also in the foreign service. Like anybody who knows it, I mean, come on, when are you going to have time to be like an operative that can handle weapons and and kill people like an assassin and also be like a switch computer programmer? The whole thing, like the premise is just nuts. And I guess we're separated from this time by 38 years now, right? The time of publication. And I understand that Percy is there to kind of show off a cool thing, kind of like uh, Stacey Sutton in A View to a Kill. Oh, she's a seismographer, right? Well, <laughs> turns out that doesn't, that doesn't matter at all. She can kind of read some grids and knows that the San Andreas Fault's been flooded and, and all of that, and she has a Commodore in her bedroom. That's fine, and that, that's it. Uh, uh, Commodore but... <laughs> in, in her bedroom that has, like, amazing, like, uh, that's true. bandwidth as well, <laughs> like, yeah, inter- yeah. for that time period, you know? <laughs> that's right. Anyway, uh, Percy is is a flat character to me because she is she's a means to an end, and there's no dimension given to her. Yeah, especially you know at the end of the book with that conversation, like, well, Bond, you know, we we just we just love the danger too much. Like, we're obviously not meant to be in love because mm. you know it's just always going to be looking over our shoulder together. Yeah, you're right. Let's just kiss and be done with it. Like, what was she was just a sexy, like we've seen that before in the Gardner stories too, though, like an independent, sexy yeah. female agent who nevertheless falls for Bond's magic penis, as they all do. And there we go. Like, that's it, right? Like, I don't mind. I don't mind the free and easy sex as long as it's, you know, understood that it's not going anywhere. But Gardner's not really sure. It's just like he has his female character here, Percy, give in to Bond so quickly and I think it's like the first time that she kisses him on the cheek and he moves in and she goes, no, no, no. And then the next night it's like, yes, yes, yes. Do you know? <laughs> it's just. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. Uh, I know what you mean. Anyway. Let's, uh, let's, so I, yeah, we can kind of table that into the girls category. Once yeah, we, we get can. To yeah. It. But, and Cindy Chalmers as well. But uh, of the two of them, though, who would you say is more of the Bond girl of the story? Like if, if you could say like, who is the Denise Richards and who is the Sophie Marceau? Well, no, that's not a good example. Uh, no, that's not a good example, but yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. 
I'd say that I'd say that Percy is meant to be the Bond girl here because Percy is the one who starts him off in the operation. He comes back to two meetings with Tanner, M, and Percy. And then at the end of the book, he takes his month's leave with Percy. So I think she's got to be the Bond girl. Um, the, the one that he sleeps with and gets some help from along the way is Cindy, you know? And Cindy is then... Yeah. At the end, Percy sends Cindy back to Langley. And I think Gardner writes that at the end of the book, Percy had a wicked smile when she told Cindy that she'd be going back to Langley, which suggests that she knows that Bond and her have slept together, but now he's off for a month. He's definitely going to be going with me. Like, And, and that's very immature writing, and it's very tropey writing. It's kind of like, ooh, you know, yeah, you enjoyed him in the field, but now I'm going to get him off the field. And it's... Ugh. Two cheerleaders arguing over yeah. the jock, you know? It's it's kind of dumb. Um, it, it but, is. Yeah. It's Betty and Veronica, basically. <laughs> uh, it's it's Percy and Cindy. Going back to Archie Comics again, it, as, as it always should. It should always go, go back to Archie no matter what. Right? <laughs> it should. Everything should go back to the Archie <laughs> comic. Yeah. It's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's yeah. talk about... Uh, so those are the Bond women, obviously, of this story. Um, M... What did you think of his portrayal in in this book in particular? Do you think M, he was still being being the uh, same M as usual? No, no, not at all. I thought M here was yeah. was really dumb. Um, I I don't mind. Like, I, okay, my problem with M is linked with the problem with the premise. Like this this inheritance bond gets, and then M being like, "Well, nah, you never, you never, you never disclaimed uh, how much money you'd be giving, and uh, you never told us that this." I don't know why M's become Jimmy Stewart, uh, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and like I, I think it's dumb i think he's dumb and i i also think gardner is not interested in having him there as any real in any real like serviceable role because if you recall uh check, m, check mark. m on page uh, i don't know yeah we got the same copy of the book we're, we're reading from a uh, an orion publications paperback everybody uh if you want to check page numbers with us as we uh, as we talk through this but uh, i'm going to page 149 here and if you turn with me buddy you'll see um 149 148 no that can't be right hang on a second i'll edit all this out don't worry uh once yeah 164 uh i'm reading off page 164 here josh um and everyone else, if you want to follow along, and if you have that Orion paperback with the blimp on the front that we do, this is mm. this is it. Like in the middle of the page, right? Bond. This is just before the final uh, the final action scenes, if you will, of the story when he's happened to get this meeting back with Bond or with M and uh, Tanner. Uh, how about my girl? How about Cindy? Percy touched his sleeve, and Bond could not meet her eyes. I'm not certain. She was a great deal of help last night even tried to steal a copy of their main program, the simulation of whatever they're doing. He turned to M. It's on Spectre's instructions, this business, sir. Did you know? Is it indeed? M could administer the iceberg treatment when he had a mind to. That villainous outfit is on the warpath again, eh? Well, you still haven't told me about Cindy. Percy had her hand tightly on his arm now. It's like it's like Gardner is willing to let the whole Spectre thing disappear because the girls are jealous. And M is like, oh, that, that damn outfit again. That snidely whiplash guy. M doesn't care. Gardner doesn't care. This doesn't have to be a Spectre story. M is so tired of Spectre by this point. And it feels like Gardner is really fucking tired of Spectre as well. It's like it's in there because it's fan service. But I don't know what fans are reading this and being like, yeah, Spectre's back. Spectre's back. All right. This is killer, man. Like, I, yeah. I, I don't I don't see that happening because M, to answer your question, 
looks really bored in this book and he's not he's not interesting to me not like he was an icebreaker where he was kind of he was kind of keeping bond in the dark deliberately and bond got really mad about it and then he realized why he was being kept in the dark here m is just like well you didn't uh, claim any of that extra inheritance bond and now we're going to make it so that you resign resign sir well yes but you're not really going to resign but um we're going to use that to our advantage because Spectre wants you to go work for them. Fuck off. Oh, M. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm embarrassed for the character of M that he had to act this way in the book. So, yeah, answer your question. I think exactly. he's bad. Yeah. yeah. Same with Bill Tanner. Uh, brought a character Tanner, back. yeah. Was... Like, what happened there, Josh? What happened with Tanner in this book? Tanner and Bond are supposed to be like best friends, but here, here he's like some, I don't know what he is, like some sycophantic upstart that's just wanting to push bond down and like oh well we've got to read you like, your book he's rights. almost like he's become like a careerist almost in a way like a yeah, very ambitious really it seems like he's steamrolling over bond because of the public reception mm-hmm. of the whole situation with the with the uh inheritance let's talk about the so-called windfall when they said uncle bruce obviously i have my reaction going who the f is uncle bruce when course, he yeah. is the orphan of like of a uh, you know of a of a Britishman, of a Scotsman, and a Swiss, a Swiss French, woman, yeah. French Swiss, Swiss woman. Yeah, 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 I think that's what it was. Yeah, who is Uncle Bruce? And when when I was thinking of this, is this Gardner kind of making a joke? Because obviously, this Bruce had a lot of money. Is this Bruce Wayne? Like, Bruce who the Wayne. heck are we talking about here? <laughs> In <laughs> Australia, well I don't. Well, it might it as might well, well have been. been. Yeah. yeah, Bruce Wayne's exactly. one of the only things that's not in this novel. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We forgot about the forest moon of Endor. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> I actually read up yeah. on on uh, on on the biblical Endor, which is what the reference is. So that's kind of course, of- yeah, of course. But it doesn't yeah. matter. It's it's a word. It's a term that's in the cultural. It's in the cultural psyche at this point of publication, like really richly in the cultural psyche. So is Gardner oh. just ripping this off just to get a few extra readers, or like what's he doing here? I don't know. It's kind of like his reference to Tara in uh, for special services yeah. too, right? But mm-hmm. so, who are uh, the Ewoks? Yeah, well, the Ewoks could obviously have foiled this operation by uh, <laughs> by, by the new specter, in my opinion. Just need a couple of like uh, booby traps stones. and some like wooden logs and stones. Yep, cha. <laughs> more work for Warwick Davis. Uh, anyways, uh, <laughs> I don't think he needs much more work. He's doing all right. Yeah, he's doing okay. He's got that uh, not-too-great Willow series, but... Well, whatever. You know, it's cool. Yeah, it's cool. He does his thing. Um, Moving on, though. So, Nick the Blimp Pilot, uh, probably, like, the only likable character in the whole story. (laughs) I like... He kept kept Nick the Blimp, man. He is cool. Like, he's he's cool under pressure. Uh, He's working under duress, and he he even looks at Bond kind of like, oh, who are you? Oh, right, okay. Well, I suppose... You look like a ticket out of here, so I might as well hitch my hitch my wagon to you, you know. And that's that's so that is good. Yeah, Nick Nick's okay. Nick's pretty cool, but again, you know, he's serviceable. Um, but I'd feel pretty good if Nick was flying my blimp. That could be an innuendo of some kind, but I can't it's, really. It's not a euphemism. It's not a euphemism. No, it's not. But it's still it's affectionate, regardless. So we'll we'll take that as it is. It is now. Yeah, adversaries. So let's talk about our big bad. I suppose the main villain. Uh, you could argue for the majority of the story is uh, Jay Otomholi or Jason mm-hmm. Sinjin Finesse, uh, as he's known, mm-hmm. Professor Sinjin Finesse. So obviously, let's go right to it. 
Uh, this book came out in 1985. A Vita Will Kill came out in 1984. And we have... 84. 80, oh, oh, okay. So perhaps then, perhaps... Was Sinjin Smythe in a view to a kill? Was that a nod to this story? Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, the, I, I, the of course, I think was, it did. Maybaum must have stole the blimp thing too from John Gardner as well. Yeah, yeah, I don't deny or I don't doubt that for a second. Yeah, I mean, there will be people listening, I'm sure, who know the exact answers to that date, time, you know, subscript and reference point. So, by all means, get in touch with us here on Bond by Numbers and let us know. But certainly, that's the leading evidence that Sinjin Smythe came from Sinjin Finesse and the blimp came from the blimp. And I'm also thinking, by the way, that there's some uh, living daylights play in here too. But we, we can talk about that when we get to the the narrative you think of Whitaker mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. Whitaker's character versus war Holy's war games you know I think there's I think the 80s bonds also, benefited from some again. of some of it yeah of course yeah yeah and all the computer stuff did, Gar- did, Gar- did Garner borrow that from uh, Never Say Never Again I wonder curious but anyways yeah so we have Jay Otum Holy uh, as a villain I'm going to say not too much really uh, I did like the war game scene, to be fair, and I did like how he has a huge tantrum, and that did make his character somewhat <laughs> more right. interesting. Yeah. He seemed very shrewd, and I found like his ma- I found like his mannerisms and how he spoke and how he dealt with Bond, like despite Gardner pushing unbelievable, like the unbelievable narrative. And this isn't uh-huh. like an unbelievable narrative in terms of like you know Moonraker, uh, the film, for oh, no. example. No, 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 no. This, no, is, no. this is just unbelievable in terms of how people would act in the intelligence community in this profession. That's right. Yeah. And how they and how they would deal with situations. Like I, I yeah. think the whole situation. I, th- I think the whole thing about him, like learning computers. I think Jay Otamholi or Finesse would have saw through that. Like totally, instantly. would have sniffed him out completely. And maybe he did. Yeah. But if, but plot if he armor did, save Bond there. Yeah. Yes. Plot armor. But, but if, if he, he did, did see what? through it, he's he's not. Like it. It wasn't revealed really in any depth by the writer. Like. The, the yeah. thing they can't, that they keep getting hung up on is like, is he trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Well, if you really thought about it, how did this fucking guy learn to be a computer expert in a month? That would tell you the answer to your question. Is he trustworthy? The answer is no, because he went away and learned it from some chick in Monte Carlo. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Monte Carlo. Yeah. He's a dull adversary. Uh, Tamil Rahani is also a pretty dull, uh, big bad He's ahead of Spectre and he gets away, which is the most exciting thing he does in the story, really. I mean, he has that chat with uh, Bond when he's a prisoner or not a prisoner, a guest in the Erewhon facility, uh, which is of interest. But he, he's not really that interesting. Rolling Joe no. Zwingli. Rolling Joe Zwingli. I mean, he, I didn't even... He, he might have been in the book twice, but for the chat yep. and introduction he gets at the beginning, he's just like, oh, watch out for him. And as for Tiger Bomb and Happy... These guys, what are they like? What? It's just, it, that's just that's just a gimmick. That's pandering to the gimmick of having a Bond henchman in there that has a cool name. That's all that is. Because is, th- is that a cool name though, Tiger Bomb? <laughs> okay. Like I don't know. Okay. Like that, right. that's some sort of like type of lip chap, you know, like Tiger Bomb, you know. Like well, it is. It's an ointment. It's an ointment. It's a, it's like a heat activated ointment that kind of works on muscles and things. Yeah, for sure. It is a real thing, Tiger Bomb. Yeah. But well, it's, that's cool, it's dumb, uh, I guess. Because he's not a bad this, guy. He's just, you know, he's he's not even a bad character, really. We we know that John Gardner wrote, before he did the Bond series, this Bond series, mm-hmm. he that's did, right. like, co- like comedic spy stories, like almost parodies of pi- spy parodies, stories. Yep. Uh-huh. I, kind of the way in, in the same vein that, like, Terry Pratchett did for fantasy novels. So mm-hmm. I'm really wondering if, you know, there's uh, there's still kind of, Gardner is churning these out so far. 
but maybe he's still in that parodic mind frame where he wants mm-hmm. to kind of satirize the Bond franchise a little bit and, and kind of show it's a bit, it's a bit long in the tooth by this point, 1984. That's a good point. Yeah. And, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, maybe, I, and I think maybe. he's catering. Is he, I think he maybe be catering more to like a post Connery bond. Like we're still kind of in the more, we're in the late more era. Oh yeah. But Octopussy has just came, has just came out and we're going on to the next bond and the next bond film is on the way. So maybe Gardner is kind of just like the bond franchise itself, just adapting to the times and, throwing these things in because this is typical bond movie stuff. Although I, I don't think they right. would call it. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to but say. That's like the difference he's between him tro- and tropey and safe like, here. Yes. Very tropey, very safe. And Gardner has by this point in his uh, tenure as a bond writer, he has decided to write bond movies. He's not writing a Fleming novel the way Kingsley Amos tried to do. This is no. Kingsley a- aimless. I just called him Kingsley Amos. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction you make, though. Like, he's drawing from the films more than he's drawing from the source material. Yes, you've still got the same characters and name, but I don't see a lot of Fleming here in this book. Like, not in the texture of the relationships, nothing in the locations, even when we get to them, they're kind of, you know, spat upon. It's There's not much Fleming sweepness here. No. Gardner is playing, I think, with like the headlines at the time, obviously. So you have Tamil Rahani, who's obviously an Eastern East Indian background, or no, sorry, Le- uh, Le- Lebanese. Lebanese American. Le- Tamil Lebanese American. Lebanese American, exactly. So he's playing, you know, with the whole Beirut situation here. He's playing with PLO, all that sort of stuff, you know, like he's doing that here and making basically uh, an Arab businessman out of this individual. Yeah. Also, and you've got the Iran Contra stuff they, going on in the background and. Exactly. It's, so he's, you know, he's doing headlines there. Uh, Simon, uh, he seemed kind of interesting to me. At first, he's kind of sympathetic to Bond's view, but that was more of a ploy. And then all yeah. of a sudden, like, he, a, a switch is flicked. I think even Bond's character notices this, like, near the end. It's like, a switch is almost flicked where Simon automatically becomes, like, Spectre strongman number two all of a sudden, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, he does go from he, he does go from kind of ambiguous to like, oh, to, villain. To Vargas. <laughs> to Vargas, basically, yeah, in yeah. Thunderball. <laughs> That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nah, Vargas is cooler. Var- Vargas was a better character, in my opinion. So there we Well, go. he had less dialogue, that's for sure. He did, yeah. But I don't know, Vargas just had that whole like sadistic kind of sadomasochism thing to him that the actor conveyed, I think, with his eye, with, with you know, he even acted with his eyes, with his expressions and stuff. Like he said a mm-hmm. lot without mm-hmm. without saying anything, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, and we also have and Dazzle and yeah, John Finesse as well. And Dazzle is the character who doesn't really do anything in the book, but until the end the, when the we cur- find out that, you know, she's uh, in, in bed with the mill. Is it assumed that she is then driving the car in the uh, in the opening sequence, like in, in that uh, heist that uh, yeah. they drive? I'm potentially, assuming that's her. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. Could yeah. be. But at the end, yeah. anyway, that's, so, I mean, to, to, to give you your credit on the world building point, maybe this is where, maybe this is where we're going because, uh, you know, Tamil Rahani and uh, Dazzle Sanjan Finesse are both out together and they're both out of the story together. So... Could very well be that Spectre continues through the two of them in, you know, the next couple of Bond books by Gardner. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So here we have at the end of it uh, from the from, from the av- adversaries, we have a new Spectre under Rahani, and uh, he has his own minions, his own network, as we can see how he tried to get mm-hmm. Bond in Greece. Mm-hmm. Uh, although he uses like a, 
assassin who has a blow gun like i don't understand why they just like walk in or shoot him or blow the house up or something but no he has a Mm. blow dart gun like this is the sign of four or something like that like or (laughs) i don't know like it it just (laughs) yeah waiting for tonga to pop up on the thames (laughs) (laughs) anyways so that's allies and adversaries i just wanted to go over those characters i think that's the best way to kind of give our feelings towards what we thought of the allies and adversaries it's a good way to break it down in my opinion it is indeed Yeah. So I basically, my, my opinion on the allies and adversaries is that they're cardboard cutouts, you know, aside from Holy, who had a little bit of, he could have gone somewhere, but he didn't really, he just went back and he was so like wiped out, like in a puff of smoke, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> no, he screams yeah. and turns and gets shot as he jumps on someone. He's like a tiger. He just jumps and he gets shot and he drops. Hey, that, that's it. And that, that, that's all he is. And uh, for all his dull. planning, you know, yeah, it really was. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of compare him, I guess, to how they wanted, I guess, in Never Say Never Again, you have close Maria Brandor as uh, Largo, and maybe they wanted to do something with that character in that direction, but uh, maybe, I don't know, it's it's hard to say. So in terms of allies and adversaries, I'm going to pass it, I'll give it two and a half out of five. Well, that's exactly what I gave worked. it, actually. I gave it... I did okay. the same. I gave it two and a half out of uh, out of five as well. I would I would have just given the score for the characters themselves as two because I don't really think they're that interesting, and I, I'm I'm less than interested while I'm reading them. But I think that if there's some world building that happens, and this is where we're going to give credit, you know, there is some depth to Freddie Fortune that could be of interest going forward. There could be character arcs with Tamil Rahani and Dazzle, and maybe this is why. There was some darkness about the two of them, some shadow about them. Uh, maybe, maybe that's maybe Gardner doesn't want to reveal everything yet. And if that's the case, then I'm happy to give it a half point on the uh, on you know the good merit that I hope you know is deserved. But truthfully, there will be people listening to this that know how these characters end up if indeed they ever return. So um, yeah, as they exist in this book, two. But going forward, I hope we get to see a little bit more of them. So two and a half. Okay, that's a good one. All right, so let's move on to narrative, uh, where we talk Please. about the story itself, and I suppose just the terms of the writing style. I mean, we kind of been through the John Gardner writing style, and we talked about we sure Icebreaker, how we definitely found an improvement compared to the first two novels. I feel like we're regressing back to the previous John Gardner from Icebreaker in this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless this is a setup novel, as we talked about, like mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. the adversaries and allies. Like, is this a setup novel to the? to a few more storylines that he's going to be pulling out in the next couple of years, then great. Then I'll accept that. But for the meantime, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're very much like in special for, for special services territory. Definitely. Uh, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the novel more than for special services. If that's anything to say about it. Um, okay. <laughs> well, you didn't it, like it, the it big was, snake. <laughs> you didn't like not the big particularly, snake. No, no, not, not particularly. Hermes um, Python. It'd be good if there was one of them in the blimp. Yeah. Uh, just the story is very generic uh, and it's completely unoriginal. Like he just takes different ideas from perhaps other authors. Uh, just in, the, it, Also the, the Bond fran- the, the Bond franchise in particular, the Bond film franchise. I mean, obviously he does, but you can kind of clearly see it of the ideas that he gets. And he's following the usual tropes. He has the beautiful women. He has the car. He had a new car this time just to make things interesting. Uh, yeah. But then there's like this, just like plausi- the implausibilities we discussed, you know, in terms of of uh, 
Sinjin finesse how he bets Bond and, and how that screening process was completely unbelievable and 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 and, and self-serving to to the author telling the story and not, and not helping the story whatsoever, just creating more mm-hmm. plot holes and more plot armor for Bond in this case. I mean, we obviously know James Bond's going to come through. I did like how in this one, though, Bond was never really in danger in this one. Like, I got kind of tired in the Gardner story about, like, the interrogation sequences where, like, he gets interrogated and you go through the whole process of him almost dying, even though, like, in Icebreaker, <laughs> it was done relatively <laughs> yeah. well. Yeah. It was. Just, I'm just kind of glad we, have, we, have, we avoided that. But at the same time, I'm disappointed about how the that the climax is anticlimactic. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a very pat form in my, in my opinion, like that is a two pump chump. You know what I mean? Like it was just so <laughs> I'll stop with the euphemisms, but I, I just you. feel I that like it, it was, it was like, we had this whole big plot of a blimp and what is the blimp going to do? Like, I never quite got that. Is it because they're hovering <laughs> over I. the hotel and then the Neither transmitter was coming from that source and that's yeah, why I they believed that's it. it. Is yeah. that, I think that that was the plan, right? And they had a whole big blimp and everything, and then that was it. That was the master plan. And you know what? I give kudos to a story that would go that way if it was done well. You know, huh. it could have been interesting if it was done well, but it really didn't. I literally thought, in, in terms of the story writing, though, that the Spectre agents would descend on descend from the mooring ropes right onto the hotel and take the mm-hmm. all the all the all the, the leaders hostage or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah, I thought that yeah, was that yeah. was going to happen. It would have been cool. Something happening, but yeah, I'll give credit, you know, to the screenwriters of A View to a Kill. At least they did something cool with the blimp scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Made it, you know, we got that great Golden Gate Bridge fight. So there's that, yeah, I guess. We got awesome, um, awesome fight. Yeah. Did good? Did Goodyear get like a credit for this mo- for this book or something? Because like it's got associated yeah. with like a terrorist act and whatnot. <laughs> I, I don't know. And also nods to Black Sunday by Frankenheimer too. I would mm-hmm. say right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. That's a, a good film to think about maybe for a future uh, Three Non-Bonds. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, so I just found that, like, generically, it, the story was very generic all the way through, and then we have this kind of, this very kind of, uh, not, not with a bang, but with the whimper moment with the ending and how quickly and pat it was resolved it was just kind of just like so anticlimactic that I just really couldn't. Okay, I guess the story's over. I mean, the most exciting <laughs> sequence in the, in the last act of the story is the striptease with Cindy and sneaking into the garage. That was a bit. Yeah. Of, that was actually a fun sequence. Like I actually that like, was I that enjoyed absolutely it. was. I mean, yes, so yes did I. it was. Yeah. Yes, it was titillating. I guess you could say, but at the same time, like it was just kind of like yeah. it was something that you would see in a Bond film. You know, like. Especially the it Roger was. Moore era, like yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was. But there was also like this kind of Porky's revenge aspect to it that kept me from <laughs> like I, I couldn't quite take it fully seriously. But that's when I knew Gardner was having fun. I'm just pleased that he let Cindy make the decision. It was her call. She wanted to do it, so it wasn't like the character was put into a situation where she had to expose herself to help Bond. She wanted to. She yeah. knew the guards were after her, so she decided to kind of confidently play that card, and that that's perfectly fine. I didn't have a problem with it, but when he reached the garage through the skylight, there was some actual suspense there, wasn't there? Like, I felt like that was a well-written scene. And that was that was cool, because then Peter Amadeus jumps up at the end of a chapter, and you think, oh, what's this then? What's going to happen? But then it's mm-hmm. itself kind of like a red herring, because now he turns out to be okay. And, you know, so I, I like the way that that chapter ended and the next began. I also thought it was funny when he said to, when he said to Amadeus, well, you're just going to have to stay in the trunk. It's the best I can do for you right now right now and he said yeah because 
staying in the trunk is better than working another day with this guy. So he just hopped in. Yeah. You know, I found uh, the training sequence at Erohan, uh, mm-hmm. wherever that made it might have been, someplace in the Middle East, obviously, or or, or warm. It kind of reminded me a little was. bit of like. I wonder if it was like uh, the Balearics or Mediter- somewhere somewhere in the Med, just because it was certainly warmer, yeah. but he couldn't have been drugged like and out for days, like for hours and hours and hours, like, and then still come to yeah. and be able to act proficiently. You know, of course, I mean, verisimilitude is not really high on Gardner's list here. So, yeah, it, it could have been like North. It, 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 it could have been North Africa. That's very possible. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah, good point. I can see that, or the Canary Islands too, or something like mm-hmm. that, where they could get him mm-hmm. back quickly in time. Uh, but I did like, you know, in terms of like, you know, nice. There were some nice Bond mots here. For example, we have the Arahan facility. It kind of reminded me of Spectre Island from from Russia of Love. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think we, I think that's a fair say. And I did like that whole section, like even though it was a set piece sort of in in the novel, um, it's almost like it it felt like it was a section that was written particularly well. I thought that whole action sequence where they drop him, feed him to the wolves, so to speak. Yeah. And that that was pretty well done. I I thought that was one of the the best written action sequences. Garner does write the action sequences very well. He has a way of demonstrating violence and finesse at the same time. Yeah. He doesn't get overly gory about it. But he no. gives you like quick streaks of blood and mm-hmm. and or and brain, but then he moves on. He doesn't kind of like overindulge into the gore and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And he makes it very professional on how he describes the yep. action. So yep. I did enjoy that section. I think that was my favorite part of the whole novel was that whole section. And to me, oh, well, I thought okay. that was that was going to be kind of like the bouncing point. That, that would be the jump off point to maybe uh, amping up the narrative too. But it, okay, it kind of cool. It, mm-hmm. As soon as he goes back to the facility, he then has like the war games thing, like borrowed right from never say never again almost except mm-hmm. we're using like the revolutionary war yeah uh, with the computer totally. programming the erwan thing to me did sort of make me think of um, the mujahideen training stuff in daylights and i might have just been you know projecting a little bit there because i know what's coming up in the films but i do wonder if maybe there could have been a little bit of uh, a little bit of that on the go you know yeah, kind of like a, a precursor to Kamal Khan a little bit. Yeah, yeah. sorry, Kamal Khan, uh, Kamal uh, Khan. Cameron Shaw. Cameron Shaw, yeah, Ka- indeed. Cameron Shaw, yeah. And Art Malik could easily have played Rahani at that time too, so. That's possible. right. But you, you know, buddy, th- there's an elephant here with um, the narrative that we just haven't spoken too much about. And we don't need to say a lot about it. But th- the reason that I'm really sinking this one is because... I find it preposterous, even for the time. And this is me given benefit of the doubt, okay? I find it preposterous for the time where com- maybe not as much is known about computer um, coding and, and programming as, like, the challenge. Maybe maybe people were still viewing it as a hobbyist pursuit more than, like, an actual career. The idea that Bond could, even in 1983, when the, the book's being written, that he could just become a computer programmer or trick a genius in this field with only a month's training, it, it's it's insulting. It's ridiculous. It suggests how little was made yeah, of the rigor, the rigor of the craft. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm sure, or perhaps like Gates and Job and Wozniak were insulted by this movie. Wow, well, this book. If book. Uh, if Sorry. yeah, perhaps if if they yeah. even read it. But at long stretches, right? Like computers are rated really highly in this book as well, and it is well researched. I do think some of what Gardner is writing holds up in terms of the technology. But the idea that Bond could go away 
in Monte Carlo with an attractive woman and learn this. It's just ridiculous to me. I don't know why Gardner decided to do that. Like if Gardner had sent him to like this, you know, public service facility where he met like actual computer programmers who were like boring nerds, like Homer, when he went to, you know, university, right? Like if he was living <laughs> with those guys, maybe I could see three or four months, but I just feel like there's not a lot of, there's a lot of interest in the computing world in this book, but I don't think there's a lot of respect for it as a profession or as a discipline because Bond can just get in and get it real quick and then go trick everybody with his computer knowledge. It's kind of like, oh, what's the passcode for like, uh, you know, what are the cheat codes for Mega Man 2 on the Nintendo or like Ninja Gaiden? Yeah. What do I need to do to get ultimate? Oh, we'll just go away and learn learn the cheats and then plug them in and then there you go. If If it's that easy, you know, then anybody could do it, I guess. But he's... I just found that was really dumb. The computer stuff is well-researched, and the war game stuff is cool, with hints of where Whitaker's character comes from, like I was saying, but it's, I, I just couldn't get past that jump-the-shark moment. And even given benefit of the doubt to Gardner and recognizing that we're 38 years distant from this book, I still don't think in 1983 there would have been anybody in the computer world that would have read this and been like, oh, he totally gets us. Like, this is it. This is a computer. Like, anybody can learn this stuff in a month. No. And you no. you said it a few minutes ago. After Icebreaker's pretty inventive original plot, which was still safe, but inventive and original, this feels really easy and convenient and slapdash and kind of paint by numbers. And let's use, let's use computers because they're going right now. Let's use these kind of hot terrorists because they're going right now. And oh yeah, an airship. Mm -hmm. Let's throw an airship in because, you know, they're all over the football games in America. So here we go. You know? Yeah. Throwing a bone to the American audiences. Yeah. I think, I think maybe. Anyway, my, my score for narrative Uh, was two. I failed it. Yeah. I was really going between a two and a two and a half because I did like the Arahan sequence. I did like this true. How holy I did like how finesse or holy was uh, tricked in the end, and yeah, the setup yeah. possibly for future books is, seems interesting uh, uh-huh. to me. I, I don't know. Like I didn't, I didn't love the narrative of the story, and I didn't hate it either. Uh, but it was very generic, so I'm going to pass it. I'll give it two and a half, but nothing more than okay. that. Uh, cool. There were just like sequences, like the things that just didn't add up. For example, Arohan. Why even have that sequence in the first place? Because why couldn't Holy and Rahani just kind of like appear? Like, there's no reason why they had to have that whole like car chase and and that sequence. You know, like it was just, yeah, just, just creating action action pieces. And then we have like the so-called MacGuffin of the story, and this is the Epoch signal or mm-hmm. or the Epoch code or whatever it was. I mean, action films of the the 2000s and whatnot, like 24, uh, like or TV series, for example, like 24, they use the whole idea of the nuclear football. You know, that like code, we, we know it exists. It's the nuclear football. It's that coding that the president only, only the president has that can, you know, activate nuclear war. But in the Reagan era administration time, in the Thatcher administration time, mm-hmm. I really do not believe there is a de-escalation code for nuclear yeah. warfare. This whole plowshare <laughs> thing. Like, yeah, the pl- yeah. Gardner yeah. must have been an, Gardner must have been an optimist or something to kind of play with that. I don't know. He was making some yeah. comment against 
make some comment about the time period and maybe we should have something like this. We, we maybe in 86, always, you know, 87, about, you know, maybe, maybe later yeah. in the, in the decade, there could have been a potential for it with the cold Gorbachev and all that stuff and the, the Berlin wall, but yeah, not Gwa- now, not in the early years. Yeah. You're probably right about that. Um, anyways, I don't see uh, the Jennings, you know, having any uh, compunction about <laughs> plowshare operation, that's mm-hmm. for sure. But going back mm-hmm. to the situation, uh, which which is this novel, unfortunately, uh, yeah, two and a half <laughs> for the narrative. Okay. Okay. Now, one thing I want to talk about, because we, don't, we do allies and adversaries, but let's just look at Bond in particular. What is your opinion of okay. the writing of James Bond in this story? Because I'm, I'm, I'm curious this, to see kind of like yeah. what you think how he compares to the Fleming Bond is, do you believe this is the same character that Ian Fleming wrote that even Kingsley Amis wrote, you know? Uh-huh. Well, I, I don't, I don't see this. I see this as entirely John, uh, John Gardner's James Bond now, because this is not a bond that really gets excited about his food or about his drink. He is into weapons in a way that Bond was snootily into weapons, whereas this Bond just changes them all the time because it's gadgets and it's new and give me this one and I want that one and tired of this car, I'm going to this car and yeah, I got a lot of money, so I'm going to do this with it. And I don't see Fleming's Bond being quite as reckless with his expenditures. I don't see him being quite as kind of fickle in his attention to kind of these externals as Gardner's Bond. And that says something about, I think, Gardner's interest in the gadgets and the tech world. Um, But I don't feel like this is the same character. No, it's not. It's an updated Bond. It's, It's an updated Bond. I, I don't feel like Gardner's trying either. So I'm not going to say he's failed because if no. that's what Gardner was trying to do, then he's failing because it doesn't feel like Fleming's Bond. There are very few. I remember us talking about this with Icebreaker and it was kind of a point of action for us with that book. But there are very few weaknesses with this character. This character attracts everybody. This character beats everybody this character easily finds his way through and into all environments and as you said the whole tormented torture scenes he gets out of these easily um i don't think this is james bond that fleming gave us who was a richer character this this is more like an action hero like arcade game this is more like oh okay this is more like mario brothers on the arcade you know what i mean like he's moving around he's doing stuff he's eating he's he's sleeping with girls or women he's doing stuff but i don't see him reflecting i'm gonna play that mario game <laughs> <laughs> okay bad example more, more like leisure suit larry or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah bond is resourceful but Gardner doesn't give, because as you said a few moments ago, he pushes the action so much in his story, even creating set pieces for the sake of having them in there, he doesn't allow Bond's reflection here in this in this adventure as much as he has in, I guess, the first and the third book. I don't see him as Fleming-continued character. Amos was trying to do that. I don't see Gardner trying to do that. And that doesn't mean I don't enjoy his Bond. But if this is this is a different idea of Bond. It's the same family of characters, but it's a different writing. In my in my view, like uh, I hope that there will still be moments where there are Flaminian feeling and whatnot brought into the stories. But um, no, it feels to me like when Bond's enjoying a meal and a glass of wine, it's a token toss in there for the reader, and then he goes on. Like Fleming really sinks into those moments, you know. 
He really sinks into those moments. Plus the friendships, the friendships, Josh, that Bond makes in the Fleming books, I think is important as well, because, you know, I think that Gardner's Bond is a lone wolf. Like four books in a row now, and his distance from the main, his distance from the team, uh, the MI6 team and his allies is really felt like here he's the most emotionally detached iteration we have seen in all of the in all of the Gardner stories, I feel. And it sort of connects to being retired. Okay, fine, for the sake of the story. But it's also Gardner, I think, just seeming to care a little less for the relationships and the heritage of the character and just wanting to push him on into a new place, a new frontier, uh, new adventures. Just, I think he's been influenced by the films more than the books that have come before him. And that's what's really motivating Gardner's writing is the film bond, not the literary bond. And I'm not, again, saying that's bad or good, but these are continued adventures of James Bond. These are not continued Fleming Bond stories. It could be said even that, like, when a James, we we now have up to the present now, several James Bond authors after Fleming. And it could, have, it could be almost be seen as if, you know how, like, with the Bond film franchise, every actor brings a different type of Bond. You know, we have the uh-huh. Connery Bond, we have the Moore Bond, we have the Dalton Bond, the Craig Bond. Maybe, you know, this is the John Gardner James Bond, right? And then yeah, we're going totally. to have yep. the, yep. we're going to have the this Sebastian, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, the Volks Bond. We're going to have the the Sherwood Bond. So we're seeing, you know, different, maybe as we got to view it that way, is that we're getting a different type of James Bond. Oh, with, with, entirely. With, with, I think we have with to. With a different author. I think that's the best way to go about it. That said, yep. uh, we, th- we talked about uh, Percy and Freddie and Cindy. Uh, yeah, the we've Bond done enough with the girls. And her allies. And- we talked about the girls. Um, I failed it. I gave it two out of five. Um, okay. Well, I think Freddie yeah. Fortune has some potential, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I found the other characters were just totally just like plot service completely. And yeah. uh, the person they were Persephone Proud was so forced. Like they even made a reference to to honor her Majesty's Secret Service. Like we actually had a Tracy reference. In, I, I think know. in the Gardner book for, I the, saw that. for the first yep. time, and they connected it with this Percy Proud character. And I'm just like. I almost find that like sacrilege a little bit, but yeah, that's just yeah. me. Um, so, you know, and then that, that, that's, that just even made that relationship seem even more forced just for putting dialogue in like that. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, so. you're absolutely right. These are characters that exist purely to do what the women characters do in the movies. The ones that aren't really that important, really. And, you know, he could have given them way more interesting arcs, way more. In- like, I understand why he's made them CIA agents, because they can't just be sexy women anymore. They have to have a fucking no. purpose and an agency. And they should have a fucking purpose and an agency in the story. You know, these standalone, just kind of sexy model women in the books, that they are never really that interesting anyway. You know, I mean, yes, it's the male gaze and all that stuff, but it's not it's not interesting stuff to read. What's interesting are like the backstories of the characters. And these characters, you, you wouldn't know that they haven't just come off an assembly line. Uh, Freddie Fortune, Freddie Fortune to me has some appeal as we've already said she generates from bond an authentic reaction that speaks of something more that has been there in the past and that we haven't really seen from him before with a woman all of his women are new conquests he enjoys them some more than others he wants to see them some more than others in icebreaker we had paula vacker i think her name was paula someone and she had a history with bond which was interesting he didn't know that she was um philpo or what is it uh the, the finnish uh, intelligence agency, right? Yeah, I, whatever I it was, like now. you know, yeah, me too. But uh, you know that 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 was interesting to me. Um, but as soon as Freddie's been used as 
access into Endor, she's discarded by Gardner. And that's disappointing. You know what I mean? Like, I gave I gave girls two and a half because I thought that he was suggesting there's something interesting there with with um, Freddie. But that's generous. That's very generous. So two and a half for me, two for you. I totally respect your failing grade. I only passed it on on good merit. But no, anybody listening to us prattle on here, this is not a great story. If you like female agency, uh, if you just if if you want to be impressed by the women in your Bond novels, including Gardner's own Bond novels, don't look here. It would be interesting. Like I do like the idea of like. Cindy having some sexual agency on her own. Like she clearly sure. wants Bond yes. and she goes. Yeah, for I it. like that too. And Bond is like, and, but it's kind of like at the same time, it seems kind of like male fantasies. Like it's basically male fan yeah. service in a way. Like it, it really feels that way. It's like, well, it's, well, it's a peep show for I, us too, right? The whole thing's a peep show. Yeah. For the reader. Exactly. It's like we, we are the, the reader are those two guards, you know, standing outside. That's right. Like yeah. that's, yeah. that's, that's what they are. And Gardner even acknowledges, you know, kind of like the euphemisms and the innuendos mm-hmm, that they mm-hmm, would use, mm-hmm. right? So he's talking about the reader going like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. But at the same time, <laughs> like, she offers Bond, you know, her body and and and, uh, and and Bond with his response. Yeah, sure, I guess so. And, yeah. and then it's mm-hmm. like, you know, I wouldn't mind that. But at the same time, like if he's with if he's, he's with Percy, and there's nothing in the story whatsoever about him coming back to Percy at the end and mentioning Cindy. It's like with, it doesn't even mention the fact that like would Cindy care? Like Bond doesn't say. By the way, I had to sleep with Cindy. We don't get a moment a moment like that whatsoever. And I also no, I'll 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 check myself. Bond did not have to sleep with Cindy in any capacity. Like no, Cindy offered herself to him. Yes, it was actually right. it was actually a risk. It was actually a risky move to do so. Uh, although finesse could have bought it as Bond's usual behaviors, I suppose. But I well, Bond does Bond does yeah. play it kind of aloof, right? Because Cindy's uh, Cindy is brought up in that meeting with M towards the end, and Percy has asked him twice. Remember, that's the thing that she interrupts M's. Well, she doesn't interrupt. She punctuates M's kind of blase point about Spectre with by saying, I just don't know, Percy. I've no idea what happened to Cindy. He told her about the previous night, leaving out all that happened after he got back to her room, but repeating the conversation that he had with Holy in the morning. You know, she's turned into a traitor and she kind of goes off and sits with the other, uh, sits with the other um, commandeered employees from Goodyear, right? During the operation. But Cindy, Cindy right. is just, right, right. just a tool that's discarded. And as we've already said, it's Percy that takes some joy in sending her back to Langley. So it's kind of like cat fight at the end, but not really a cat fight, just dumb. Betty and Veronica, there it is, you know. Uh, let's move away from Betty girls. Let's finish this up. Yep. We've got locations and Location. equipment. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll fire on real quick through this, okay, because I think I've already stated my feelings. Monte Carlo, it's a total gimmick. Like, why Why are we here? It feels a bit counterintuitive. It feels sans, fan service because this is a book that's not going to do anything with casinos or drinks or meals or anything like that. So let's just set the computer training episode in that part of the world so that Bond can get out and fucking jerk himself at the table in the evenings. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's really what this is about. And it's dumb. Yeah, I find that I just find it dumb. I guess it satisfies the glamorous idea in Gardner's mind of a hardworking agent who also plays hard at night, you know, but that's, that's almost like Miami yeah. Vice bullshit we got going on there. <laughs> I, I, I don't like that very much. Uh, Endor. We need some more Crockett. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
Endor is is it's okay as a setting, I guess. You know, I like the idea of having this big room where they have these game simulations going on. Uh, the country house itself is really poorly described. I thought the the best interior presentation we had in any of the Gardner books so far was when we were up in um, in Scotland in License Revoked mm. or License Renewed mm-hmm. rather. Uh, you know, we we had yeah. that going. I thought that was pretty cool. With the Laird of Macaldi, but nah, Endor, Erwan was a good scene, and the airship is cool as well, but these aren't really settings. Uh, I find this a really boring book, you know, a boring book for locations, really, really boring book for locations. Um, But because, because it, you know, it suggests perhaps a bit of world building, the Erwan stuff, I went for two and a half, but I struggled to go above that, though I do appreciate there are people who might want to. They might really like Bond in Monte Carlo or something like that. I don't know. Two and a half for me. I I passed it. I did two and a half as well on this particular category. I found the location description, particularly like in England, uh, for Nuns Cross, uh, Endor, that was 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 fine. It worked well for the story, I think. And he gave me a, a feeling of where Bond was and whatnot. So I could feel, you know, the atmosphere in that respect. I liked how Gardner described how they were flying over, how how different it is an experience flying in an airship versus like a plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you're kind of just like almost floating over the over the over the landscape, you know. Like I think he, de- I, I liked how he described that. So the vistas, not the blimp itself, but the vistas the blimp created and the visual imagery that created for me, I found that very compelling. Uh, which which me finding that compelling and exciting uh, was, of course deflated like the dirigible itself when that final act came so yeah well okay i passed it two two and a a half that's what i have right well let's move on and finish our conversation on roll of honor by talking about the gadgets now you're a gadget guy you like your equipment so i'll let you have a go first all right so first of all we got the bentley mulsanne turbo uh, probably like a 1983 model, I think it was maybe. I can't quite recall. But um, it's got a transmitter built into it uh, with weapon compartments installed, of course. He asked the Bentley dealership to do that. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, we have an ASP 9mm pistol. Once again, Bond is changing pistols again because John Gardner has like a, a weapon and, and equipment fetish, obviously. Um I think he's playing to like the teenage boys, you know, different types of guns, different types of gadgets. Like he's playing to that audience of uh, of the readership. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then we have like um, we have like that pen that unscrews with like the screw with it with a screwdriver inside it, and then he used that screwdriver, I think, to kind of like unscrew part of his luggage to reveal a secret compartment where he had the spare car keys. Yeah, and that just yeah. seemed kind of like a bit superfluous. Like, why don't you uh-huh. have the spare car keys in the, in the pen? Or something That's like right, that, yeah. you know what I mean? But yeah. it just seems well, kind of that like would be a tricky. Bit, but that was a bit more like Maxwell Smart uh, <laughs> to me. Mm. Uh, Agent ninety nine. Speaking of Maxwell Smart, yeah. And speaking of Maxwell Smart, we do have a shoe involved. Uh, we, we do. Have a yes, we do. Device put into his shoe, which is a nice nod to gold and to Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. So, I'll, 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 you know, I'll accept yeah, but that. Do, but do you and notice, we buddy? Like we never hear. We, there's there's never a payoff for that because the transmitter and the 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 tracker in the shoe Bond is forced to strip naked and he loses all of his clothes as soon as he comes back from that meeting almost as soon yeah. as he comes back from that meeting we never hear what happens to that stuff the transponder or the, we never hear again what happens it's almost like here's some more gadgets we need to put into the book so I'm going to stick him in here and then the character takes him away and we never hear again 
when Simon tells him to yeah, take all his that. clothes off and wear this. Yeah, we get that kind of uh, night rider scene, right, where he drives on to the to the back of the uh, <laughs> semi transport, the lorry, so to speak, yeah. and uh, you know, you know, he gets drugged, he, he's stripped, and then he's drugged, and then he wakes up, mm-hmm. of course, on the on the plane. Yeah. So, jet and on the jet, whatever, flying oh, conveyance, sure. what have what have you? <laughs> Anyways, those, those are that's all the equipment. It's fairly generic. <laughs> Like I, well, I don't, I don't new I, gun, either. the ASP nine millimeter. You know, that, that's that's a new new gun, but they change yeah, so fucking regularly that I forget like, the other ones. Yeah, like yeah, they mentioned mentioned that like I think the young Arab man who was on the plane, uh, who was one of the henchmen, he had a Walther. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they mentioned that, and Bond didn't really didn't really use any of his gadgets except like that screwdriver thing that we didn't even know about from the beginning. Like it wasn't even Chekhov's right. gunned, you know, like. It just yeah. came out of nowhere, and then and it's like, what's it really did. Yeah, I guess you could add for equipment though, useless equipment. Why did he? Why did he even have those computers in his boot? Like, I never understood why they kept the computers in the, <laughs> the computers in the car. Yeah, like why is Bond <laughs> driving around a whole bunch of like hard drives? Is he going to be like selling them like in his spare time? That's right, car like, boot sale. Like, Pop it up. Yeah, <laughs> like I don't understand that. Why go with war simulations? It just kind of seemed like uh, just so anti James Bond. Just the vi- just the visuals of henchmen finding yeah. computer drives inside a garage. You know, like it just I, I don't know. It just seemed like that was, subwoofers. That was the, yeah. It's, yeah, it just seemed like they were trying to find a way to create urgency or uh, you know suspense for that section of the story. Uh, they the he I should say yeah yeah no no I know yeah yeah good point. Uh, I gave, I gave more than a pass to equipment. I gave it okay. a three, and I don't think I don't think it goes any higher than that for me. Okay, well, do you know what? I, I I am giving it a three and a half, and I'll tell you why I'm giving it a three okay. and a half. Okay, and I'm not I'm not gonna. This is it's a half point, buddy. So we're not. I'm yeah, not trying you can to justify you. that half point. I will. Okay. I will. Yeah, because half half a point, you'll have to push me hard on this one. Yeah. This okay. Well, this is definitely one of Gardner's less gadgety books for sure. Right? It totally is. Mm-hmm. You are absolutely right. Um, and this is a writer who loves his gadgets too, buddy. But I, I do think that I do think the computer angle here in the novel was supposed to be or satisfy the gadget techie side of things here because of the time and when it was written i think that makes the book and its reliance on computers more of a techie gadgety book than just here's the gun here's the car here's my thing i got in my you know my boot or my whatever today right we're reading this book and we feel let down because if we like gadgets, because this is a really and like empty, it's it's quite an empty, vacuous book for gadgets. But the war simulations and the computers would probably have filled that void in 1984. So in fairness, I Maybe. think he's done a good job of re- researching the computer stuff and making it interesting for the time, even if it isn't so interesting for us today. And on I, I agree on, on that, I agree. I'm I'm going to go three and a half just because I think the computer stuff would have been seen as more of a gadget. Even if it didn't have a lot of plot agency <laughs> or, you know, like, yeah, because you know, ultimately nothing was ever needed because M had it all figured out anyway. So <laughs> I, I'm going to go three and a half just because I, I think the computer environment okay. was meant to be gadgety. But yeah, so you went for a three. Okay. That's uh, let me do the I math here three. and I'll, yeah. You could convince me possibly to go to a three and a half based on what you say. Like, I didn't really consider that. And that makes, you know. I absolutely concur with with those ideas you put out, but we have war games going on, 
and we have no Matthew Broderick or Ali Sheedy. Like I that's just true. feel like, you that's know, true. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going back to those three points. That's true. Three, I'm going back to three out of five, man. It's, it's missing those key ingredients. So there we go. <laughs> no problem. Uh, I'm just doing a score, bro- buddy. You're at five and a half, seven. Uh, you're at a 12 of 25 for this. And I am at a two and a half and two and three and a half, which is 13. So I'm a point. I'm a point above you on this one. I, I went for oh. 13. I went for 13. You and you, to. my man. I did, yeah, 13, and you went for 12. So it's an interesting turn of events here. Um, not only have you uh-huh. liked the book less, but uh, it's, it's, an important, it's an important division here because, you know, we often kind of follow a trend with our scores, but not usually do we find a book on the failing end. So, yeah, out of 25, Josh, uh, you, you score this 12. That's good. I like that. I like that we've got that narrative here to, to start. 2023 going forward that's cool i'm at 13 and you're yeah. at 12 so a little bit of friction yeah a little bit yeah i think we both see the book eye to eye but uh yeah cool cool all right well that's our scores for roll of honor the fourth uh, gardner book the next one i believe is no deals mr bond which we'll get to in uh, in a, a little while we got a few more episodes is it no deals go. mr bond i thought it was uh nobody lives forever Ah, quite right. Quite right. You are my good man. Nobody lives forever. Because you sent me those two books. Yes. yes, I'm assuming that was the next one in order. You're correct. You're correct. Um, Let us know what you thought about about our scores and how this book situates on your favorite Gardner or Bond novels. Give us an email at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com or check us up on Instagram and uh, respond to the post there that you see on this book. Let us know what you thought of it. It'd be really interesting to see what the uh, the listeners uh, feel about this one, Josh, because we didn't like it very much. And uh, <laughs> it, 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 although you did say, buddy, even though it received a, a, a lower statistical score, you did say that you enjoyed the reading of the story more than for special services. Did you maybe, as a as a, a goodbye, want to say something about that? Or yeah, my enjoyment of this story compared to, like, for example, the scoring that I gave for special services, like for special services, I enjoyed less than this novel. But I perhaps probably a better maybe book. I was generous. Yeah, like sometimes I find that with the scoring mm-hmm. doesn't really. Yeah. yeah. W- when you're scoring, you're you're basically evaluating. We evaluate individual parts of the story, and then we make our score from that. That's right. But that doesn't necessarily, as as we discussed before, convey our convey you know mm-hmm. what our full experience was in terms of reading that text. So I enjoyed this novel. Like it's a Bond novel. Like it was okay. You know, I, I enjoyed it. I didn't have any qualms <laughs> about reading it. Yeah. Like it has some action sequences, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. And I enjoyed it. I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I didn't really like, uh, I, I can't, it's like a complete indifference to me. Like it just <laughs> felt like it was just, it was just a routine, just, just a routine assignment on yep. my desk. And, uh, yep. you know, I did my due diligence. I, you know, <laughs> That's right. I, I, I read it in the span of an evening. I read it in the span of an evening and, you know, and then I just you go. cranked out my, this is my, the show that my came out of it. Yeah. Weeks. Exactly. That's what we have. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this episode. Uh, we will be back on Bombay Numbers very soon with our other co-host, uh, Jeff Chapman, to do a non-literary gun barrel episode. We've got a couple of more features left to this season before we close shop for our winter break. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see you back here on the show very soon. Josh, thanks, buddy. It's always good fun talking books with you, even if they're not always Absolutely. up to scratch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, everybody. Uh, bye-bye. Thank you.